On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are going to be chatting about public money, always a favorite topic. Should council pass a motion that is going to be brought forward that would require public use of money in public bids or private bids for events, Grey Cups, Juno Awards, that kind of thing to be made public, or should they be able to keep it secret? We'll talk about that. The Holocaust is going to be on the docket today because... Apparently, according to a new study out of Canada, the number of Canadians who know nothing or very little about the Holocaust is growing and is now shamefully low. Why is this and is it reversible? We're going to chat it with an Academy Award nominee, a guy from Hamilton. He'll be joining us as well. He is up for one of those golden statues and we are hoping not only does he win, but brings it to us when he does to show off his trophy. But in the meantime, he's going to tell about the experience of getting nominated and what his movie is about. All that coming up right now. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Hadn't intended to necessarily have my next guest on again this soon after we'd had him. I think we had him earlier this week, in fact. But something has come up, a motion that is going to come in front of City Council that he is proposing. Only made sense to bring Councillor Brad Clark on again. Sir, thanks for doing this tonight. Oh, my pleasure, Scott. Anytime. Uh, the motion, now this this whole thing stems from, and I think people are familiar with the story now. I'm sure Bill Kelly, I think Bill has talked about it. I know I have. This is what came in front of Hamilton City Council regarding the Grey Cup bid that the Ticats were proposing that wanted help from the City of Hamilton. And it was a long discussion about what should be public as far as the discussion and what money was going to be given and what wasn't. Um, anything you want to add to that part of it before we jump into this? Is that a pretty fair assessment of that, where this started? That's a, an excellent assessment of it. Um, but I did find that over the last few days that the Tiger Cats seemed to be taking more of the heat than uh, councillors or myself, and I found that that was unfair. Um, they explained to me last night that the CFL has restrictions on them in terms of what they can release, um, and I wasn't targeting the Tiger Cats. I was targeting the the process itself, so I... I uh, supported the mayor's uh, amended motion last night and uh, drafted another motion that really does get to the systemic issue of these bids. Well, and the systemic, that's a great word, because this seems, I don't know how often this happens, but it apparently happens now and then. So you've put forward a motion which, in short, and again, correct me where I go wrong here, in short demands that any kind of bid money or money the city will contribute towards a bid for a private or public uh, event, Grey Cup or Junos or whatever, that money or in-kind that the city will provide must be made public at least 24 hours before a vote at council, correct? No, prior to the submission of the bid. Okay. So the idea is that, uh, you know, and there's a, a, a plethora of, of ways that this could happen with bids, but they could be international games, national games, award shows, trade shows, and, and these things happen all the time. So the idea is to be completely transparent with the voters and make the, any grant, staff, time, loans, policy exemptions, or in-kind contributions public 24 hours prior to the submission of the bid. And the idea there is to mitigate this this feared risk that somehow we're going to prejudice the bid if we if we speak publicly about the bid. So in other words, if I'm interpreting this properly, then the secrecy or the privacy around the money could be kept until after such a point that any other city bidding wouldn't have time to react or to change what they're doing. That's exactly the strategy. Now, you're, when this thing started, when the Ticats came in front of 
council, or maybe it was even before the Ticats came, it was when this thing first really came up in front of council to be discussed. You brought up, you raised, and you had a couple other councillors who were standing with you on this one, the idea of why is this being done in camera? If I recall correctly, and my memory is short, and in this case it's really short, but it didn't seem like the overwhelming majority of council was behind that. Why do you think a motion that would push for this now would have better chance or better support than that seemed to? I think a part of the pushback from some of my council colleagues was because um, the Tiger Cats were being singled out. And I think as time goes on, councillors are learning more about the process and learning that the idea that this somehow prejudices us uh, with future bids is, is really a non-starter. It, 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 it's not the case at all. Um, so if we look at it from a systemic viewpoint and we set a an actual policy across the entire city treating all bids uh, equally, um, I, I think that this will rise to the test for them. I'm still confused about how it is that if we tell the public as part of the bid process. Now, there's two different, let me back up for a second, because there's two different parts of this. There is the private bid, and in this particular case, and it's not always, but in this case, we'll use the Ticats, because they're the one that is involved in this one. It could be other groups for other events. The Ticats have their bid. They are a private company. They are fully entitled to keep the details of their bid absolutely private. No one is demanding otherwise. But I'm failing to see how the city announcing even ahead of the 24-hour period, saying how much public money is going to be spent or public uh, services is going to be spent on this. I fail to see how that can be harmful. I do too, um, but we do have some staff members who um, believe that it would prejudice uh, a future bid or perhaps even prejudice the decision of the bid. It's been my experience on international games. Uh, I speak to the the World Cycling Championship that I was involved with, um, the bid was made public. The, in, the, the actual dollar values was made public long before uh, it was submitted, and it didn't prejudice the bid, and Hamilton won the bid. I am having a hard time understanding why this is a big problem. And Brad, let me go to a, an, a, an example and saying up front that I have no idea about the numbers that I'm throwing out here. I'm throwing out wild numbers. I, there's no, I don't, this is not the actual numbers you guys talked about. If it is, it's completely by luck that I've guessed it, because I don't think so. Um, but let's say we decide that we're going to give this bid $500,000, and another city hears about this and says, all right, Hamilton's giving five hundred. dollars got to win this. We're going to give $750,000. How does that injure our bid if the bid itself is superior? It, it doesn't, and, and, and that re- you're really summing up my point. At the end of the day, it's been my experience that when these organizers who are, are receiving the bids and, and evaluating them, they actually evaluate the bid based on what's in the bid document. So you could invest $500,000, um, and, and your bid document may be completely off the mark in terms of what um, the organizer is looking for what type of party, what type of public uh, events are going to happen. The in the, in the entire enchilada, you may, you miss the mark, or vice versa, or vice versa. Have uh, we ever had that you know of? And now I know you weren't on council last time, but last uh, time term on council. But mm-hmm. have you ever heard of a case where here in Hamilton we have become aware of another city's bid for an event and tried to eclipse what they're paying to try and beat it? I know I've never heard that happen. 
So do we, so a lot of what we're talking about of this fear may actually simply be hypothetical with no basis to say this has actually happened before. I think it's an unsubstantiated fear. Matter of fact, I, I believe Hamilton bid uh, $550,000 for the Junos one year and London won it at $500,000. I mean, it sounds price had nothing to do with it. It was what was in the document. If I had to guess, it sounds to me more like the concern is that if we say to the Tiger Cats, for example, using the same dollar amount that is not based on anything, it's just my imagination. But if we're going to give the Tiger Cats five hundred thousand for the Grey Cup, that someone else, the Juno people, may come forward and say, "Well, we expect five hundred thousand at least." And if you say, "Well, no." you're only getting 300 then it looks like you're playing favorites. The concern is, let's keep it all quiet so that we don't have to have anyone knowing how much we're giving. And, and, and I would argue that everyone deserves to be treated equally, but each bid is completely different. If you're bidding on an international games, the Pan Am games, the actual bid investment from the city of Hamilton would be much higher than what would be for the Grey Cup, simply because of the size of, of the bid itself. And so each bid is completely different. There are completely different um, criteria to win a bid, um, and each of the criteria are usually weighted, and it has nothing to do with the dollar value. So do I understand correctly that in this particular case now, after lots of going back and forth, if we do, if the city, if the Ticats win the Grey Cup, the right to host it, we will find out at some point what the amount is that we are giving? That's correct. The, the, mo- the compromised motion that the mayor put forward was to release uh, the upset limit um, after the, the bid decision is made. So when, the ti- when, when, when and if the Tiger Cats win it, then that's when the amount will be released. And here's the big problem I think a lot of people have with this. It may be an amount that people, and again, you can't say it was in, count, in, in, uh, in camera, but it may be an amount that people are fine with it. They say, no, that's a reasonable amount. But let's say it's an amount that we find out later was an outrageous amount of money. What is the, what can people do about that? There's nothing they can do by the time this comes up. Not at that point. And I know one counselor said, yeah, but the elections are the time when you can flex your muscles as a voter. That, that, that to me was a, I mean, we're three and a half years away. Nobody's going to... This seems like the kind of thing to me that if a number comes out and let's say council said, well, we're going to give $7 million towards this bid, you have to give people a chance to call their counselor and scream and yell or to, or to support it one way or the other. But it, it seems nonsensical the other way. Yeah, the, and, and it's, it's in crafting the motion, the, the challenge that I'm having is trying to find the compromise where everyone is feeling comfortable enough that it's not going to prejudice a future bid. So I'm completely comfortable with it going forward, and as soon as the bid is submitted, uh, or as soon as the, the, the council votes on the bid, that the actual bid docu- document itself remains confidential until it actually goes to the organization, and then after the bid decision, 24 hours later, that bid document, if it was a municipally initiated bid, would be made public. But does but the that dollar value can be made public in advance? All right. So that that's the part I didn't understand then. So because when we talk about how there's nothing you can do as a as a citizen if this thing is kept until after we win the bid, yours suggests that 24 hours before the submission of the bid Correct. does that not lead to the same problem? It, it could absolutely. I can't I can't disagree with that. But I'm doing my very best to find the support so that we have some level of transparency. 
what, as I let you go, what kind of support have you heard? Have you heard anything back yet as far as people's take on this from around the council table? Um, I, I've heard from a couple of them that they were very pleased that it was more systemic and it didn't, I, it didn't go after any specific bid. So we're looking in advance at all bids, and I think that was one of the issues. And I think uh, I've al- also suggested, um, and what we're going to do is it'll be a notice of motion on February 6th, and it will stay a notice of motion for 30 days, and then it will come to be a motion. And during that 30 days, we'll have ample time for the public to comment, to call their counselors and express their, their, their thoughts. Councillor Brad Clark, always appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this. No problem. Take care. Uh, I am very much in favor of our public money being discussed publicly unless there is some overwhelming reason why that can't be done. And I don't see the overwhelming reason in a case like this. The Ticats are a private business. They are fully entitled, legally, morally, ethically, in every way. They are entitled to keep their bid details private. But when any private company comes to the city and says, I want public money now, that kind of thing should be out there for us to discuss and to make a determination on it to be able to speak to our counselors before those decisions are made. That's what I think. Radley at 900CHML.com. Love to hear from you as well. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900CHML. Coming up, we'll mark the 74th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz-Birkenau. Uh, do you know what that is? Now, may that, that may sound like a really insulting, I gave you a few seconds there to think about it. And for some of you, it's like, well, wait a second, why would you even pause? Of course, I know what that is. Some of you are even insulted that I would ask you that question as if there's a chance you wouldn't know what that is. Well, the reason I ask you is because a new study of Canadian adults, not children, Canadian adults, shows a remarkable lack of knowledge about that moment in history and about the Holocaust in general. 54%, according to this new survey study, 54% of Canadian adults don't know, don't know that more than 6 million Jews were slaughtered during the Holocaust. And if you talk to millennials, 62% of people don't know that. 62% of millennials do not know that little, I thought, everybody knew piece of information. More than half of millennials cannot name a single concentration camp. And a quarter of them say they weren't sure if they'd even heard of the Holocaust. Did you catch that? Nearly a quarter of millennials don't know if they've heard of the Holocaust. They, they may have heard the word. They're not really sure. Here's the last one. Nearly a million people were murdered at the Treblinka extermination camp. 2% of Canadians said they knew what Treblinka was. 2%. What's that old line about those who ignore history or those who forget history? You know what I'm talking about? Now, let me bring in Carson Phillips. Carson Phillips is the managing director of the Sarah and Heim Neuberger Holocaust Education Center in Toronto. He's an expert on Holocaust education. He's adjunct facility at Gratz College in the graduate program for Holocaust and Genocide Studies. Carson, thanks for doing this today. Oh, pleasure. Thank you. I don't I didn't, I don't expect the number when you ask those questions necessarily to be 100%. I'm not that optimistic. Uh, I may not even think that three quarters of Canadians would know, but I would hope so. But those numbers, when I read them and when you read them, they have to be stunning to you. 
Yeah, for sure. I think for all of us involved in Holocaust education, for many of us working in the field, they're very sobering numbers. And, you know, they are certainly surprising, and I think very sobering and certainly a call to action to enhance and increase our educational outreach. How does this happen, though? How do we get to the point where this many people don't know? I think we live in a world where information of many um, events, many tragedies, many happenings, you know, we, we could have access to 24-hour information. So it's, you know, being able to discern information, what events perhaps are more critical in terms of historical significance, and also which events impact our lives. So I think there's no shortage of information uh, of, of a whole variety of issues, and it's a matter of being able to, I think, historicize and place within a, an, in a correct hist- historical context um, events that have a significant impact upon our lives and continue to do so. But if this is, and I don't think, well, anybody who knows about it, you know, you almost have to parse this now because we're clearly hearing people don't know, but anyone who knows about it would say this is one of the most significant stories in modern human history. Surely when they come to teach this in school, this is at the top of the list of things that are being taught in history. How do we have all these people seemingly coming through the system where that is the case, like what history teacher is not teaching this? How do we have these people coming out the other end without a knowledge of this? Right, and it could be a matter as well. One of the things that colleagues and I were discussing today was the uh, the way in which we're presenting information or the way in which millennials in particular are accessing and storing and utilizing information. So perhaps, you know, the, it puts an onus on us to make sure that our pedagogical methods, the way we approach topics like the Holocaust, are are engaging to millennials and it's really mm. like a- appealing to their intellectual curiosity and in some ways it is a new a new era and i think you know one, one of the good things i think that will come out of this survey is that it will make us reassess the ways that we're teaching about the holocaust so that we will be able to say we are having an, an impact and we are reaching different types of learners and not just perhaps relying upon ways which may have been effective in the past and now we need to readapt our methods i did read something though today that said uh, it was someone uh, antis- uh, guessing or trying to interpret why this would be the case. And they said, could this be a case? Because we don't like to be upset by stuff. We don't like to face things that are unpleasant now. We don't, And we generally in our society, we can avoid a lot of that stuff. Uh, are we simply ignoring it because of how upsetting it is? And if kids are very uh, upset when they hear about this in school, we're better off just to find something else to teach them. I mean, that could be, you know, I think you're probably looking at a whole variety of reasons, and that could have some influence, although I suspect for a lot of learners, it's finding ways which they interact and engage with the material that speaks to them and says that this is more than just, uh, you know, a line or a paragraph or a textbook. This is really has historical significance. And engaging them in that learning process so that they are part of it and they come to realize themselves that, yeah, this is really a significant historical event which continues to reverberate in history. So I I, I tend to think it's more along the lines of us being able to, as educators, being able to engage young people. Let me throw one other thing, though, about this out there before we take a quick break. Uh, A few years ago, there was a study done by University of Montreal researchers. Now, they were only concentrating on the province of Quebec they found a near absence of mentions of the Holocaust in Quebec high school textbooks, meaning 
the students there clearly are not going to be getting it because it's not in the textbooks. Do you know if there are any laws in the country, province to province, guaranteeing or forcing school districts, school boards to teach this? Well, education falls under the provincial mandate, so every province will have its own jurisdiction for establishing what is taught in in its curriculum. And in Ontario, it's primarily taught within the grade 10 history curriculum, but also many school boards have brought on a genocide and crimes against humanity course, where certainly the Holocaust is taught in conjunction with other examples of genocide. So we certainly do know that it's being taught. And because it's not in a textbook, it's not always the best barometer to know, because we also know that, for example, where I work, there is an enormous amount of work being done in grades 6, 7, and 8, for example, with teachers who are using uh, youth literature, which is geared specifically for young readers on the Holocaust. Uh, even though it may not be in their curriculum, it is still a way for them to access you know, different literary styles. So I, I would say that there is a lot of work being done, you know, and certainly people are very passionate and very committed to doing it. Um, and so I think, you know, across the country, you would probably find, you know, different, uh, different levels and different varying degrees. But I, I would say, you know, from my experience working in Ontario, um, there are a number of entry points which teachers utilize to incorporate the Holocaust. Carson, th- here's where things really get puzzling to me, all right? So so even if you're going to say, you know what, I'm not all that concerned or interested in the uh, the history of the Jews, all right? I mean, if that's if that's your point of view, that's your point of view. Uh, if I'm, I'm not all that interested in history, I'm not interested in war, all that kind of stuff. But we do live in a really hyper-social justice time, and millennials are at the forefront of that. They are fighting for equal opportunities and equal rights and equality and all that kind of thing. The Holocaust, in addition to eradicating Jews or trying to, was also about eradicating gypsies and eradicating homosexuals and eradicating the disabled and other marginalized groups. That, if nothing else, would seem to gather the attention of those people. Well, yeah, and I would say, I would agree with you that the Holocaust certainly has this unique aspect to it of, of the genocide of the Jewish people, and, and with that, the genocide of Rome and Sinti, and also it has these universal experiences, I think, which many people do draw upon and do find, I would say, both interesting but also important in their lives. And as you've indicated, you know, the um, the targeting of the disabled, the targeting of homosexuals, the targeting of Jehovah's Witnesses. Mm. So it does have a very far-reaching effect, and you know, just in terms of how one responds and acts and behaves in civil society, there are many things that, you know, the Holocaust teaches us about about um, participation in democracy, participation in society. Is there any reason, do you have optimism or caution when it comes to five years from now, ten years from now, when a similar survey is done, do you believe the numbers of people who don't know will be up or the numbers of people who don't know will be down? Well, I, I have optimism because I know that there are incredibly talented teachers who are working in school boards across the province, across the country, who are very committed. And I do know that, you know, from colleagues of mine who teach at universities, that there are vast numbers of Jews and non-Jews as well taking courses in Holocaust and human rights and Holocaust and genocide studies. And so, yeah, I, I do have hope. Um, and I think what this 
type of survey does and why it is so important is that it, it really establishes a benchmark for us. And I think it inspires a lot of people to say, this is a wake-up call. It's a clarion call. We need to double down on our educational efforts and we need to be able to measure our educational impact and we need to able be able to know that we're making an effect, making a difference. Well, I, I hope you're right. I, I really do because uh, people will remember this story just recently, about a year, year and a half ago, when the federal government was dedicating the Holocaust monument in Ottawa, the plaque they put up didn't even mention the Jewish people. And it was, it, you sit there and you say, all right, you know, I know you maybe don't want to isolate one group. This is the time when you isolate one group. It, that's what the Holocaust was. How did someone miss this? Yeah, I mean, I wasn't involved in that, you know, in that project. So, you know, I don't know what the bureaucracy was behind it. Um, but it makes you wonder how yeah. something like that happens well, and a lack sure. of knowledge. For sure. But I think every time these events, and, and this is why it's so important that shows like yours are covering it, is that it really does um, work as an impetus to, to get people involved and to say, you know, to teachers or to the public who maybe, should I do this? Should I go visit the Holocaust Education Center? Should I read a book on this? I think it really does encourage people to say, yes, I, I should be doing this. So... Well, and, and why we're talking about this, at least why I wanted to bring it up and why I think it's so important is not just for the past, although that is, but w there was one other number that was included in this study. And it was when people were then told, even if the ones who didn't know necessarily, they identified themselves as one of those who didn't know much about the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. When they were told a little bit about it and asked, could this happen again? 48% of people in modern society said, yeah, this could happen again. Th that seems to me reason enough that we better know about it. Yeah, that's certainly a shocking number. I would say it's beyond a sobering number, but that's a very shocking number. And, you know, if we do believe that these types of, you know, horrific incidents can happen again in history, then we really do need to guard against and, and prevent and, and work to be preventing these types of, of activities from happening again. Carson Phillips from the Sarah and Heim Newberger Holocaust Education Center in Toronto. I sincerely appreciate your time today. Thanks for doing this. Thank you. Thank you for covering this event, this story. A uh, couple things just to add to this as we go to break. Last year in Hamilton, among hate crime numbers that were tabulated by police, the number one group, because we hear a lot of different things about a lot of different groups, the number one group that suffered the most number of reported hate crimes, Jewish people. So, and, and this is not a surprise to anybody that somehow the anti-Semitism ended with the end of the Holocaust. The other thing is, and I would encourage you, if you happen, and I don't want to mock you, I, I'm not going to mock you, but if you happen to be one of those people who would have, if you were asked this question, would have been one of the ones who said, yeah, I probably wouldn't have been able to answer much of the questions or say I knew much about the Holocaust or the extermination camps or all that. Well, let me tell you something. You can educate yourself in a really easy way. It's not thorough, but it gives you a hint. I know that starting next month, I think it's on February 1st, Schindler's List is showing up on Netflix. That's being posted there. Watch Schindler's List. That will get you started. Um, Band of Brothers. Even if you only watch the eighth episode of the series of Band of Brothers, it's called Why We Fight. That will help you out. Uh, I think still on Netflix, there's a, a BBC series called Auschwitz, very simply, and it is stunning. Find something, because if you don't know don't wallow in your ignorance about this. Find something and learn something about it. It is important. It is important. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML.
I would think, as I said a moment ago, that the absolute dream for just about anybody who has ever put together a film of any kind, whether it's a home movie, whether it's a feature film, whatever it is, the idea that you could actually be nominated for an Academy Award, that sounds pretty darn cool. I'm not going to lie, that sounds pretty darn cool if you saw that happen to you, if that came true for you. Well, it did for a Hamilton guy. His name is Trevor Jimenez. He is the director, animator, and a bunch of other titles on a short, an animated short called Weekends. It was nominated this week for an Academy Award in the Best Animated Short category. Trevor joins us now. Trevor, how are you today? Hey, great. Thanks for having me. Hey, congratulations. This is, um, as I say, I can't imagine anything that would be cooler than seeing your name pop up for that. Oh, yeah. It's really hard to top something like this. It was a um, really special couple of days, past few days. Have you, in, uh, I mean, you're a young guy, but have you played out in your mind before this week what it would be like to get nominated? Have, has that thought ever crossed your mind of what that would feel like? I mean, you can kind of um, daydream about it. You know, <laughs> it, it never thought it would honestly be a reality um how close was the reality though how close was the reality to what you had daydreamed about oh it's different i think it's you know it's this once in a lifetime experience that you don't know what it feels like until you feel it Um, i was in a state of shock when i I watched it online with my wife and my mom she was on skype and was kind of speechless you know but lots of love and uh, really excited and happy so Lots now, of emotion. This is you're in California right now. This is these things are announced at some unearthly early hour of the morning. So, uh, t- tell me yeah. about your day up to that point. Had you got you had had you known you might have been you were you say you were watching a line. So, you, was there a hope? Was there a thought that it yeah. might happen? So there's a whole process where you know your your film's playing all year at different festivals, and then if you're lucky enough, you get shortlisted. That means you make it to the the last ten films. And then they picked five of those for the nominees. So I knew I was in the conversation. Um, and then you wake up, the uh, announcements are made at 5.20 in the morning, Pacific time. Uh, so we got up at around 4.30 that morning and like had breakfast. And um, yeah, my mom phoned in. So we knew there was a possibility, obviously. But um, yeah, you know, you, like there's no way you feel a sense of conviction. Like you're like, whatever happens, happens. It was crazy. Like, I actually, um, when they announced the fourth film out of five, I actually thought I wasn't going to get it and um, started shaking my head. I was like, okay, that's, you know, that's it. And then they announced our film last, and uh, I just uh, was in a state of shock. And my wife was teasing me, like, why, why did you have to pick a, a film with the start of the letter W? Because they announced it in alphabetical order. So, yeah, you know, we were kind of holding our breath. And then, What was the reaction? What did happen in the house when that when you saw that pop up silence or was it berserk um i'm pretty mellow but you know i was feeling a lot inside but i think <laughs> i'm more of like an internal processor my wife she's pretty low-key too but you know there's a lot of feeling we just looked at each other my mom was crying on skype and you know i just looked at my wife and like gave her a hug and a kiss and um you know we just said a few words to each other and then i talked on them after but lots of emotion um yeah, I can't really describe in words what it felt like. And, and then my phone just blew up. I just got texts from like every friend I think I've ever had in my life that day. <laughs> I would expect so. High school, college. Yeah, it was amazing. Yeah. Am I correct, Trevor, that that day was also significant for you for another reason? 
Yeah, it was our uh, wedding anniversary. Well, wow, see, perfect. So, Can't do better than that. Yeah. No, it was great. We had uh, dinner plans already that night, so we, we went for dinner, and uh, it, was, it was an awesome day. When you walk into the restaurant, I'm jumping way ahead, but when you walk into the restaurant that night for your anniversary, do you drop the line in there? Oh, by the way, I, I just got nominated for an Academy Award. Do I get a good table? No. Uh, yeah. I'm pretty, <laughs> like I said, I'm pretty low key. I don't like drawing attention to myself. Like I've, I'm cool talking to people about it, but I would never like point it out to someone that didn't ask or, yeah. This movie, and now not everybody has seen it. In fact, I would argue that probably most people listening haven't seen it yet. Uh, I hope they will at some point. Uh, it is a yeah. an animated piece. It's uh, two dimensional, so it's not the like the. I know you've worked for Pixar. We'll get to that in a second. It's not a three D. It's a two D animated uh, piece, about fifteen minutes long. Tell people what it's about. Explain the premise of Weekends. Sure. Uh, well, it's a personal story based on my own childhood memories, and it's about a kid who's kind of shuttling back and forth between his parents, his divorced parents, uh, and it takes place in Hamilton and Toronto. So there are a lot of specifics taken from my early childhood memories um, of my parents. And there's some weird kind of dream stuff in there, too, that kind of expresses how the child feels inside. And, uh, yeah, it's done in this, um, this sort of painterly style. It's very kind of rough and raw, but I think beautiful. And, uh, yeah, it's 2D animation, so classical animation, kind of like the old Disney cartoon. So, every, so, so every frame was drawn? Yes. Yeah, we drew every frame. Um, all the backgrounds in the film are drawn in charcoal and then painted. I had an amazing production designer, a good friend named uh, Chris Sasaki, who was really responsible for how the film looked in the end. Uh, and he, he kind of came up with the style, how everything's painted. Do I understand correctly that this whole thing, though, uh, spun off of one drawing that you had done at one time? Yeah, I think it's still on my blog from 2007. I, I did this drawing as a kid. Uh, it's sort of an iconic visual from the film, the kid walking from the home to the dad's car in the driveway. And I just did that for a portfolio piece when I graduated to try to get a job in animation. So, um, yeah, people just responded to that drawing, and it, it connected with people in a way I didn't think it would, and that had me um, kind of initiated conversations about my memories as a kid with divorced parents. And then, uh, yeah, it's when I started to realize there was something there, something I could develop into a story. Just before I get to the story, you say you grew up, you grew up part in Toronto, part in Hamilton during the week, I think in Hamilton during the weekends in Toronto. Where'd you go to school in Hamilton? Yeah. Uh, well, I, so I went to a bunch of different schools. I was born in Hamilton at McMaster and lived in Westdale. And then I went to Central Public School in downtown Hamilton. I don't know if it's still around. And then we moved to Ancaster when I was like nine or 10. And I went to uh, Ancaster High School for high school. And then my dad lived in Toronto when I was young. So I, I, his condo was uh, at King of Bathurst, right downtown. Were you always an artist? Was this always your thing? Or was this something that you learned how to become? I would say I definitely learned a lot. I, I don't think... I mean, maybe my old classmates would consider me to be like the drawer in the class, but once you get into places like Sheridan College and scaling up, when you get to places like Pixar, you're not you're not the best anymore. <laughs> but I, I, I've always been drawing, you know. Um, I've always been surrounded by a lot of talented people too, but realize that everyone has a different strengths. Um, but yeah, I've been drawing since I was three, and really into cartooning and animation at a young age. And you say you went to Sheraton College in Oakville for animation. You go down after you graduate to California to look for work. How long does it take for someone who is 
I mean, really, uh, it, tell me if I'm overstating this, but really nobody in the business, how long does it take to find a job and break in and start to make your mark? I got pretty lucky. Um, yeah, I went to Sheridan College. I made a student film uh, my last year that played at a bunch of festivals, and that actually got me my first job. Uh, I worked at a place called House of Pool in Toronto, which is still around. That was my first job in the U.S., so we worked on like the Ice Age movies. And then I went over to Disney, um, 2008, 2009, worked there for a bit, and then uh, Vancouver for a while, did freelance there, and then back to San Francisco to work with a director named Henry Selick on a stop-motion film that never got made. And that film got shut down, I went to Pixar after, and I've been there for about six years. And working... A lot of different places, but um, pretty straightforward. You know, I didn't really have a hard time. And at Pixar now, you're—I don't know if you're allowed to say. I don't know if, if it's public, but you're working on a film right now with Pixar. Yeah, yeah. I've been working here for six years. I worked on Finding Dory and Coco and um, some other films, and the one I'm on now, I've been on for a year and a half, and it doesn't have a name yet. Uh, it'll, it'll be out in 2020. Was weekends always sort of lingering around in the background while you were working at your real job? Was this something that you were tinkering away at or was it something that just popped up all of a sudden you said, oh, I should probably do something with that picture? No, I was there since I graduated college. So I've actually been giving a talk um, around different schools. I, I did it at Sheridan and CalArts and some other studios about why it took so long. And it kind of tracks my post-college life trying to make the film while I worked and kind of going through ups and downs with that and then how it eventually got made. But it's always been there. So once I finished it a couple of years ago, it's this huge weight off because it had been with me for so long. Well, and if you've got a, a regular everyday job, and I don't know what the times or the work days of an animator are like, but I mean, if it's anything like a normal human being, uh, you go to work, you come home. Does that mean for the first while anyway, you were having to do this in your free time after you'd finished a whole day at work? Yeah, for sure. Or, you know, on ironically on weekends. But, um, <laughs> I, that works. I, I love what I do. Yeah, totally. <laughs> uh, I, I love what I do. So it doesn't, it doesn't feel like work. It can get tiring at times because, you know, you're, you're not um, outside and like hanging out with friends. You're kind of working and, and being creative. But um, yeah, it was something I really wanted to do. Like it was a pure passion project. I didn't know it would do what it's doing now. I just really wanted to make it. So been a really cool journey. Do you know how many frames you had to draw to make this? I mean, how, how many how many individual images does a 15-minute film require? Oh, man, I, I never counted. <laughs> um, thousands? Uh, oh, easily, easily thousands. I know just for backgrounds, just for the drawings, I did 160 or 170 charcoal drawings, which each take you know, a few hours at least to do. And then the animation itself um, isn't as time consuming, but there are more drawings. So yeah, we're talking like, you know, there's 24 frames in a second. There's oh my. Minutes, and you're, you're supposed to draw a drawing for at least every other frame. So, you know, 12 drawings per <laughs> oh, second. Man. Kind of rough math. Trevor, as you're doing this though, and this is going on, I mean, I, I sorry, as soon as you said 24 frames per second, I just about lost control of my bladder there for a second, just at the amount of work that would require. Are you thinking at any point along the way, this is so much work. Is anybody going to actually want to watch this when I'm done? Oh, for sure. Yeah. There's always moments of doubt. I think, I mean, one thing about animation is that before we start animating, we 
we cut together an animatic. So I'm storyboarding. That's what I do for a living at Pixar too. So I'm storyboarding this film and doing that over a few years and cutting it together myself. And I know because it's cut together with sound, it's very close to what the final film is, but it's very rough. So I have a sense of how it's going to play. And I, I show it to friends and, and people, strangers to see how they react. And so that really helps me gauge whether or not people connect with it or if it's funny or emotional in parts, how I feel about it. So once we have that locked in, it's pretty, you're pretty confident as you animate. You just know it's going to get better because of these scratchy rough drawings can make people feel things. And you know that when you animate it and bring it to life, it's going to even have more impact. So if the response from those people early on had been nothing or negative, but probably nothing would even be worse, this thing would have never yeah. happened then. You probably would have just said, oh, forget it. It's not worth doing. I probably would have been working on it for another 10 years. <laughs> Well, you know, I mean, you need something to work on, right? How, d- now, yeah. this is, this is, I say, after your work time, for the most part, is it costly to put something like this together when you're doing it yourself? Yeah, it, compared to a, like a film we make at Pixar, I mean, those costs anywhere from $150 million up, um, so nothing close to that. I mean, we're, I think my budget for this film is at the most uh, 100000 the most and that that's like counting time i took off to work on it i took about a year off um so yeah there's some expenses but it's not it's not unaffordable um it's a indeed short animated film that just you know took a lot of love and labor on my part and friends you know kind of chipping in here and there what happens if you win And is this a, other than the fact that you would get to win and go up and give a speech and wear a tux and, uh, you know, have a nice statue now, but I mean, if, if you win, does this have a dramatic impact on your career or is the fact that you just got nominated enough to do that? Oh, I think even before getting nominated, the film, it's done really well at festivals and, um, yeah, that's already kind of changed some things and. Uh, I, I feel more confident as an artist and filmmaker just after making it. This is all icing, you know, like all this stuff is just, of course it helps, uh, validates the film and gives you uh, more of a spotlight, but I feel really good um, already. And I'm very fortunate to have a good job at Pixar. And um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not, there's not a lot like weighing on it. I, I'm just very happy to be where I am. And well, you talk, happens, happens. you talk about how low key you are when you walk into Pixar the day after, or the next day, at, whatever the day is after you have got this and you're back at work, what was the reaction? Because now you're now you're going in with all these other animators. Are they all slapping yeah. you on the back and saying, great job? Or are you to think they're all jealous yeah. of the fact that, no, hey, look no, at that guy. So supportive. No, they're all like rooting for me. It's amazing. You know, like I have a lot of good friends here. Um, I think there's a picture on my uh, Instagram for the film, this weekend film, and there's this, uh, I had a couple friends bomb my office with like balloons, like gold and black <laughs> balloons. And my office was just full of those. Uh, you know, everyone just saying congratulations and reaching out and very supportive and just happy, you know. It's not often this sort of thing happens where like we all work on these big films together, but when someone kind of goes off and tries to do something on their own, it's pretty unique. And I think a lot of people believe in that sort of passion project. So I think there's just been nothing but love and support. Just before I let you go, two things. Uh, you mentioned that in this movie there are references to Hamilton and to Toronto in this. If so, when someone finally can see it, when they can find it, when it's when it's put out again, when they're able to find it, what are the Hamilton? Give me a Hamilton thing or two, a, a, a landmark or some mention that they'll be able to spot in there. 
Yeah, there's not much in terms of Hamilton, the city. There's the QE, you know, the highway, um, the kind of drive, the rural fields before you get into the sprawl of uh, Mississauga and all that stuff. Um, uh, I don't know. There, there are simple things. I mean, there's a lot of things about my mom's house. You know, they're very specific. So uh, just uh, these trees and, and the, the weather is very reminiscent of Ontario weather. And then there are raccoons in the film, or a <laughs> raccoon which I remember raccoons eating our trash all the time. Um, yeah, it's kind of got that feel in terms of Hamilton. There's a lot more Toronto iconography behind that avenue and all that kind of it is it is a remarkable thing. Uh, it, it's so cool that a Hamilton guy is up for for this. We we all hope you win. Um, have you? And please tell me the answer is yes to this. Have you given since the nomination any thought to if you win the award, where in the house the statue is going to go? <laughs> no, I'm not not there at all. I'm like, I <laughs> yeah, we'll see. I, I I'm always a skeptic, so I'm just like I'm just going there. And, like whatever happens, happens. But I, I, I really avoid thinking about that stuff. But well, thank you for the support. Well, let me say, Trevor, if you win, the day you come back to visit Hamilton to visit your mom or whatever else here, I certainly hope you will bring the trophy back home because I don't know that anyone in Hamilton has ever seen one of these in person, and that that would be entirely cool. Yeah, for sure. If that happens, I'll definitely bring it back home. And and you will stop in at the nine hundred CHML studios, right? Gonna nail you down No, I'm just kidding Uh, Listen, Trevor Jimenez The movie, the short animated short Is called Weekends If you can find it online I don't know where it is right now That people could see it But look around for it Find it somehow Watch it Hamilton Guy Nominated for Academy Award Trevor, excellent job Well done And thank you for taking the time today Thank you so much Pleasure Well, I'm sure we will talk again With Trevor once he wins that award Let's, uh, fingers crossed do all whatever your uh, your juju thing is to uh, to get him to win. That would be very very cool. And I you know I'm not gonna I'm not gonna pressure him. If he I mean if he wins it and he comes home with the Academy Award, that would be really neat though. I've thankful through this job. It's been very cool. I've got to hold Olympic gold medals, Paralympic gold medals, the Stanley Cup. Never an Academy Award. That would that would be high on the list of things that would be really neat to do. Um, I say it's called Weekends, and I don't know where exactly you can find it. It was online for a while. You may find it online again. I, 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 I'm positive that once the Academy Award stuff comes around, that it will be made available again. There will be a way to see it, but keep an eye out for it. When you do, remember Hamilton Guy behind that. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.